1: Before we start our episode today, this is just a reminder, History Hack does have a Patreon account and all of your donations are gratefully appreciated. There's lots of perks on there, secret groups on Facebook. Do get involved. We would love to see more of you. Enjoy the episode today. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. We are firmly rooted in the 20th century today, aren't we, Beth, but not a part of the 20th century that we usually do.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Something that we're not familiar with at all, but hopefully really looking forward to this one should be very interesting. So our guest today is Dr David Bryden, uh, who's a lecturer in the history of modern international relations at King's College London. His main interests include modern Spanish history, the Cold War and the history of global health. Books that you could be keeping an eye out for include Franco's Internationalists and Internationalists in European History. But he's here today to talk to us about the global nature of the Cold War. So welcome, David. Thank you very much for joining us.
3: Hi, thanks very much for having me
2: wonderful so let's just start basic, with the traditional view of the cold war how do we generally tend to think about what of it its origins and the way in which it unfolds
3: so I think we we learn about the cold war right in school uh partly but also we understand the cold war through things like films and tv programs and things like that and if you grew up in Britain I think the way that that Uh, the Cold War was was taught in schools and the way it was kind of presented in these films and TV programs was of a uh, a kind of a bipolar conflict. So a conflict that was primarily about the United States and the Soviet Union. Um, And if you studied it at school, you probably studied kind of certain key moments of that conflict. So you might have talked about the origins after the Second World War, maybe the the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, the Vietnam War, Korean War, perhaps to a certain extent, and then maybe the uh, the end of the Cold War in the 1980s. So there might have been a bit of Europe in that. So we might we might think about uh, Britain's role in the Cold War um, uh, to a certain extent, but we we mainly tend to understand it as involving the two big superpowers and the kind of the diplomatic and military relations between them.
1: Yeah, it's like Rocky Four, Hunt for Red October. Exactly. Rocky Four is like the
3: classic vision of of what the Cold War is like. Where
1: he ends the whole Cold War. (laughs) They're all chanting Rocky at the end. Um, You have a different perspective. So in terms of seeing this as a global entity, talk us through what's been happening in the last decade or so with people's research. What is the global South and Afro-Asianism?
3: Yeah, so one of the things that historians have, have started to do over the, over the last 10 years or so is to, to really try and think about the, uh, the Cold War from a global perspective. So, not just thinking about the US and the USSR, but thinking about the Cold War, how the Cold War affected countries all over the world in lots of different ways and how um uh, the cold war kind of manifests itself in lots of different kind of regions and different kind of conflicts so uh, you mentioned the kind of the global south so the 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 idea of the third world was something that came out of the cold war period and was tied up with the process of decolonization which happened at, at the same time so while while you've got this superpower conflict going on the other kind of big thing happening in world history is you get this huge kind of uh, Um, uh, a kind of swathe of of new uh, post-colonial states emerging. And so that kind of process becomes entangled with the the Cold War and it means that the the Cold War ends up influencing lots of other things happening in lots of different parts of the world, particularly in the Third World, particularly in the Global South, as we call it today. And if we think about things like Afro-Asianism, so one of the things that was going on during this time is that these newly independent states were seeking to to find ways of cooperating and working together and kind of forging their own uh, independent paths uh, outside of the framework of the Cold War and outside of what they saw as the very kind of negative inflact, uh, impact of the Cold War and the superpowers on their ability to thrive in, uh, as independent post-colonial states.
1: So we're immediately moving away from how we understand the Cold War, aren't we? We're moving away from this Hollywood worthy good versus evil nonsense that we've been forced for decades and moving towards something far more nuanced, but that involves far more people as well.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So this, you know, if you if you really take any country in the world, you can think of a way where where the uh, the Cold War had an influence, whether that be kind of South Africa or New Zealand or Angola or Guatemala or anything like that. And quite often, what you find is that influence was a really really negative. So what you see is Cold War dynamics driving a huge amount of, of violence and death and destruction and warfare, and quite often in kind of wars that we don't normally think of as traditional Cold War conflicts like Vietnam or, or Korea, but where you can, where there's this kind of this conflict between, between communism and capitalism and between the two superpowers is, is really having a destructive uh, impact on, on people's lives around the world. So if we think about places like Indonesia or uh, Malaysia or uh, Angola or Guatemala, um, you know, you can argue that a lot of the the kind of the violence and the warfare and the uh, the kind of the, the conflict that happened in these countries during this period is indirectly or directly linked to uh, to the Cold War.
2: Why do you think we tend to gravitate towards the traditional view of, as we've said, you know, the good versus evil, and why hasn't it been given the emphasis that it needs until until now?
3: So I think it's partly because the way we understand but so that the writing of the the history of the Cold War happened during the Cold War itself or started during the Cold War itself, so people started writing about their, their you know, studying the Cold War in the u s and in the u k during the during the Cold War so the way that that kind of those that scholarship and those ideas developed was itself a kind of a product of the Cold War. And that history to some extent is quite an easy way for us to understand uh, the period. We, we can have a kind of a nice like, you know, a narrative arc, we understand the beginning, we understand the end, we understand the kind of the key points within it. And if you try to think more globally about the Cold War and bring in all of these different countries and all of these different things, it becomes a lot more complicated, right? And so if you are like a teacher teaching kind of year eight or year nines about the Cold War, you've got the question of, you know, how do you kind of cram all of this in in a way that still makes sense? Um, for kids, or if you're—I don't know—you're a TV, you're a TV producer or a film producer, and you're doing something about the Cold War. How do you kind of tell this more nuanced story without kind of losing losing your audience? But I also think your point about good guys and bad guys is right, in that we, you know, in the West, we think about the Cold War as ultimately a conflict between good and evil, where good won, where we won. And if we take a more kind of global perspective on these kind of things what we see is is not kind of good guys versus bad guys but what we see is a kind of uh, a a conflict between kind of you know more or less uh, uh, equal blocks which are which is kind of uh, in which both blocks are acting equally destructively towards kind of you know uh, countries and communities uh, around the world so I think from a British perspective thinking about the kind of the uh, this more complicated history of the Cold War for example involves thinking about kind of, you know, British, uh, the British war in uh, in Malaya um, after the Second World War and the way that the kind of the uh, the, the kind of uh, Britain's fear of uh, communism and communist insurgency in Malaya drove kind of the, the violence of the, the counter-insurgency efforts there. And so that kind of story from a, from a British perspective is obviously more complicated than the kind of the story of the kind of the good West against the bad communist East.
1: I think, yeah, as well, you like, you... It's sexier, isn't it, to tell a story where those two are pointing thermonuclear weapons at each other. So, But in terms of the weapons of mass destruction, so for most of this period, only a handful of nations actually have access to these. Um, And I think that's the perspective we get is those nations. But what about the people that don't? How do they view the tensions between the USA and the USSR? And what sort of influence do they attempt to exert to reduce those tensions?
3: So one of the things that some countries try to do is to try to get their own weapons, right? So you have this kind of process in the Cold War where you start off with just the US and the Soviet Union having nuclear weapons, but they're quickly joined by Britain, by France, by China. But then as the Cold War develops, you have uh, the development of nuclear weapons in places like uh, South Africa, in Israel, in Pakistan. So there's this kind of process of, of, uh, of proliferation. Non-nuclear states, particularly in the kind of the third world and the global south, um, do attempt to to try to kind of um, encourage the superpowers to limit nuclear weapons and to, to promote non proliferation, particularly through organisations like the the Non-aligned Movement. Mm.
0: So the
3: Non-aligned Movement was a kind of an alliance of, of mainly uh, um, Asian, African, and Latin American states uh, who were seeking to maintain their distance from the two superpowers and one of the things that they tried to do was to uh was to kind of um promote the anti-nuclear cause and to uh, encourage the the nuclear powers to to limit their uh, production of nuclear weapons whether they were influential or successful is is another question and i think one can argue that i mean obviously nuclear proliferation and nuclear tensions continued throughout the Cold War, where there were kind of periods of detente and where there were these kind of non-proliferation agreements between the superpowers, I think probably the the, the kind of the, the pressure for them came domestically or came from the superpowers themselves. I don't think realistically these kind of uh, these this anti-nuclear um, activism or anti-nuclear diplomacy from the non-aligned states particularly had a, had a major uh, influence.
2: And you've just brief, you've just mentioned there briefly about non alignment um, How many countries are just desperate to avoid being drawn into the spheres of influence of the camp- capitalists and the communists? And how do they try and achieve that? Because, as we say, black and white, we see good guys versus bad guys. But there's there's a whole load of countries, I imagine, who are just trying to do their own thing and not get involved.
0: Yeah,
3: so I would say most countries around the world and most of particularly these post-colonial states that emerged in the 50s and the 60s are keen to distance themselves to some extent from the, the Cold War conflict and the superpowers. It's a complicated story because Diff, all of the different countries, even the ones that came together in things like the non-aligned movement had very different views of the conflict and very different ideological backgrounds. So in the non-aligned movement, for example, you had kind of Tito's Yugoslavia, so a, a communist state, although one at odds with the Soviet Union. But then you also had kind of you, know, uh, you know, capitalist states as well. So these these kind of uh, countries were never particularly unified. And they also changed over time, right? So the the kind of the politics and the leaderships of of all these kind of countries in, say, their their early 1960s was very different from the late 1970s. Um, So some countries were desperate to avoid entanglement with the superpowers in the Cold War. So... Countries like uh, India after independence and the, and the leadership of Nero is quite a good example. But other countries, while they were keen to avoid kind of entanglement, what they also saw in the Cold War competition was was a kind of an opportunity whereby maybe they could play the two superpowers off against each other and try and get the kind of particularly the economic aid they felt they needed um, from both sides. So a, a really good example of, of that is that Egypt. And, uh, and NASA, where NASA was kind of notorious at the time for, for, for managing to play the two superpowers off against each other and to, to get, you know, fairly you know, major amounts of aid out of both the United States and then out of the Soviet Union. Um, and so, you know, we should think of, uh, I think many of these, these kind of states saw the Cold War kind of context as an, an opportunity to some extent, as well as something that they wanted to avoid.
1: I'm just laughing because I think Anthony Eden might have had a more forceful description of NASA than Mm -hmm. his doings. Uh, So one of the things that has been mentioned in terms of the international perspective of the Cold War is domino theory. So for those listeners that don't understand this, what is domino theory, first of all?
3: So domino theory was mainly a US idea that that um kind of came to prominence in the 1950s so um in, under the eisenhower administration but kind of remained influential i think for the 1980s and this was in the idea that um that that communism was spreading around the world and that if you let communism win in one country, then it would create this kind of domino effect where it was it, it would win in another country and another country in another country. And then before you know it, you'd have a kind of yeah, a communist take over the world. And so it was particularly influential when the US were looking at places like East and Southeast Asia. And they thought, look, if we let the communists win in Korea. If we let the communists win in Vietnam, maybe we don't necessarily care that much about those countries in and of themselves. But it, the reason it would be really bad was it would because it was would be because it would create this kind of chain reaction. So if we want to stop communism uh, winning globally, if we want to defend the United States against communism even though you know, realistically there's no threat of kind of uh, you know there's no r- realistic communist threat to the Soviet uh, to the United States then what we have to do is we have to go out and find communism wherever it's uh, it's posing a threat wherever around the world it looks like it might be victorious and we have to fight it there and so that's the kind of idea which explains why why the US in particular but also countries like Britain end up fighting these wars against communism in such far flung places which don't obviously have any kind of major strategic impact for those countries so in places like Korea and in uh, Vietnam and and Laos and things like that I think from a British perspective you know we you know I'm from Gloucester and there's there's lots of big monuments in in Gloucester about the Korean war because a lot of the, the regiments from who British regiments who fought in Korea were from Gloucester and I always when I look at it I always think why you know, why on earth in the 1950s were people from Gloucester fighting in Korea? What was the point of that? And you know, the only reason was because of, of, of this fear of, of communism, the idea if we let communism win in Korea, then you know, who knows what's going to happen and, and who knows what will, be, what will be next.
0: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care.
1: Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I think I just want to segue quickly um, because that's what we do on History All of the Time. So the more I find out about America in this sort of period of the middle 20th century after the Second World War and how much agency America tries to exert over the rest of the planet in shaping other people's countries and stuff. Do you see the same on the Soviet side as well?
3: So um I think probably the Soviet influence around the world hmm. was was much, was much less than than the u s so the Soviet Union was obviously very influential in in Eastern Europe in the kind of the, the satellite sits that were set up after the second World War, and the Soviets did uh, attempt to intervene in places like. Uh, Korea and Afghanistan, and they supported lots of lots of kind of conflicts in in Eastern uh, Southern Africa, for example. But the Soviet Union's kind of global base system was nowhere like as extensive as uh, the United States was, and the Soviet Union never really tried to uh, to kind of launch major military operations outside of its kind of immediate uh, uh, neighbourhood. So, you know, the Soviet Union might have invaded Afghanistan, but Afghanistan mm. borders of the Soviet Union, right? Whereas Whereas the United States was 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 you know, being, you know, getting involved in these major wars you know, on yeah.
1: you know, like, completely not, the other side of the world, isn't it? Like yeah. you see, you do, so you don't see the equivalent of the Soviet Union, like I don't know, picking somewhere totally random in South America, going, all right, we need to go there and enforce communism to try and oppose America and capitalism. No,
3: and so, the Soviet Union did support kind of leftist or, or kind of anti-colonial movements in different parts of the world, but never really, it was never able to, never had the resources to do that to the same extent that United, the United States was able to do that so i think if you're thinking about the us one of the reasons why the us is is so uh, is, is is so kind of globally influential is partly this idea of the domino theory right that they they think the soviet union is more kind of globally ambitious and more globally capable than it really is so that they feel that they have to uh, uh, kind of you know um, uh, they have to involve themselves in these kind of global conflicts because if they don't they'll they'll, they'll let communism thrive but that's really a you know that's to some extent paranoia, right? That's a kind yeah. of a misunderstanding of the ability of the Soviet Union to, to kind of project its influence. And, you know, I think probably in the 19, you know, in the immediate aftermath of the Bolshevik Revolution, yeah. this kind of, you know, the Soviet desire to spread communism around the world was a very real yeah. one. But in the aftermath of the Second World War, when the Soviet Union was incredibly poor, where its economy had been destroyed, where it had, kind of, you know, it had to focus all of its resources on build, rebuilding its own economy, there was no chance really that someone as, as a kind of uh, canny as Stalin was going to kind of launch any kind of romantic revolutionary kind of crusade to try and spread communism around the world. That's just not what the Soviet Union was interested in.
1: Yeah. So we did like an episode on the history of the CIA with um, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who wrote a book on that. And it just it terrifies me the extent to which America is meddling in in things that aren't directly connected to America. Um, But as you say, so much of it is born out of paranoia. Yeah.
3: And I suppose I mean, I suppose one thing we could we could question is how much of it is paranoia, how much of it is a deliberate attempt to kind of spread U.S. influence and kind of, you know, economic power and military power uh, around the world. So this is kind of, you know, the second the end of the Second World War is this kind of period of American ascendancy and the kind of the, the spread of kind of global American hegemony around the world. So, you, you know, some, some historians would say, you know, there's an element of paranoia, but there's an element of calculation here as well. Um, and you know, U.S. military interventions were always tied up with the kind of the spread of kind of U.S. economic opportunities or, or and things like that as well. But yeah, I, th- I think it's it, it certainly is something that needs to be explained. Right. It's something it's not something that kind of happened, uh, happened naturally or was a kind of a, a natural response to kind of a, a genuine Soviet threat.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And. Just very quickly coming back to that domino theory, how central should domino theory be to our wider understanding of the Cold War? Do you think its significance is, is overplayed or do you think it has a place in our understanding?
3: I think it's important, it's an important way for us to understand us kind of mentalities during the, the cold war so to understand why the us government acted as it did and how the the us generally understood the world i don't think it's important as a kind of a, an accurate description of what was going on uh, at the time necessarily um, so i don't think you know i don't think we can say that um you know if communism had triumphed in the korean war that there was a, a you know, a genuine possibility that it would have become globally dominant across you know, Asia and sub-Saharan Africa and, and things like that. But it's certainly true that, that there were those within the US administrations who did think that and so therefore it's, a, it's an important way for, you know, way for us to understand American actions.
1: You've mentioned it already but I want to talk to about talk to you about decolonization so certainly colonial powers tended to blame communism or feared its influence in destabilizing their empires how much of an influence does the Cold War have on the efforts of colonized nations to assert
3: their independence so it has a a really big impact so a lot of this kind of you know, colonial fear about uh, this destabilizing kind of power of communism was true to a certain extent in that a lot of major anti-colonial movements and leaders were influenced by by communism so if you think about Ho Chi Minh the uh, the leader of uh, North Vietnam he was a yeah he was a a kind of a a Vietnamese nationalist to begin with but he went to France in 1919 and uh, and became a member of the French Communist Party because he uh, this was just after the the Bolshevik Revolution, and he saw kind of Lenin and Leninism as kind of the the political movement that was most likely to uh, to support and to to, to help to achieve uh, Indonesian or uh, Vietnamese um, independence, and a lot of other uh, kind of uh, anti-colonial leaders around the world were communists or were influenced by communism as well, but by no means all of them, and there were there were lots of um, uh, kind of fairly vehemently anti-communists. Um, uh, national liberation leaders, as well. Um, I think after many states gained independence, they, as we said before, they were keen to uh, to kind of uh, maintain a kind of balance in their relations between the two superpowers, um, and even the, the the kind of post-colonial states which had kind of avowedly socialist governments. So let's say places like Ghana under Kwame and Kruna and Saw their brand of socialism as very different from the Soviet Union and tried to maintain a certain distance uh, between them. But I think, you know, going back to this question of kind of violence, I think what a lot of post-colonial states, uh, uh, you know, were were trying to do was to uh, to kind of build, uh, uh, you know, to to achieve rapid economic development and to build kind of stable and peaceful societies, and they saw the Cold War as a a, a potentially really destabilizing force and something uh, that could undermine their kind of um, post-colonial projects. And that's really where their desire to, to kind of avoid these kind of Cold War entanglements came from.
1: So what do you think the cultural impact of the Cold War is across the globe? So can the argument be made that it's partially responsible for globalization or do we see the origins of that already apparent before it starts?
3: I think we see the origins of globalization uh, yeah apparent much earlier and you know historians of globalization say it starts at different times but you can go back to the kind of the 19th 18th 17th centuries or earlier if you want to. Mm-hmm. In some ways the cold war really hampered globalization because obviously this idea of kind of the world split in two isn't is doesn't kind of chime very well with this with the, kind of the idea of globalization as we understand it today. So a lot of the kind of the you know, you know this was a period of you know Developing transport and communication technologies, so to some extent, it was a, a time when the kind of the world was was uh, uh, coming closer together. But if we think about you know the, the way the global economy develops, for example, the the kind of the the economy centered around the West was was not particularly integrated with the economy centered around the, the Soviet Union or, or, or around China. So yeah, you know, we could probably say that if the Cold War hadn't happened in the way it had, then. Global interconnectedness and integration would would potentially have happened much more smoothly and much more much more quickly. Um, there were bits of the Cold War that 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 kind of um, promoted certain forms of globalization. So, for example, uh, you have got lots of students during the Cold War from the Middle East and from Africa going to study in, say, the Soviet Union or Eastern Europe or even uh, China as part of the efforts by by these kind of socialist and communist states to kind of promote their influence around the world. So lots of historians recently have been focusing on what they call kind of second, third world connections. So the, the kind of the relationships and the connections between the socialist world and the communist states on one hand and the, the kind of third world post-colonial states on the other. And that's a form of globalization. Right, it's just slightly different from the the way we we normally understand globalization, and yeah, you know, even across the the Cold War divide between East and Western Europe, where we we normally think of the Iron Curtain as this kind of impassable yeah. barrier, it wasn't in reality, and there was there was lots of you know connections and uh, and and kind of travel and entanglements uh, across the Iron Curtain, but. Yeah, going back to my uh, what, what I said before, I think probably the Cold War, we should see the Cold War as something that hampered global interconnectedness and global mm. cooperation more than the other way around.
2: And finally, just to to round things off, David, where do you think the study of this period needs to go next? What's still missing from our understanding and what are some of the emerging ideas that have quite a good amount of potential to revolutionise what we appreciate of happening during the first
3: during the Cold War. Yeah. So I mean, probably what I'd say there is that I think what we should do going forward is pay less attention to the Cold War. So mm-hmm. we the way we normally understand the 20th century, or again the way it's kind of taught in schools, is you have like the First World War, the interwar period and the Great Depression and stuff like that, the Second World War, and then the Cold War. So that's like that's the 20th century as it's kind of taught. And the idea that the cold war is the most important thing or the defining thing of the the kind of the second half of the 20th century i think is really misleading partly because it it obscures this much uh, these other really important arguably much more important processes of decolonization Mm -hmm. of globalization of kind of development and economic development of relations between kind of the global north and the global south and all of that gets lost if we just think about this as the cold war period and so what I would like to see in kind of 10 or 20 years time is actually the Cold War being taught much less in schools, uh, it being kind of less popular amongst kind of you know, you know, the general public and university students and, and things like that. And people paying much more attention to all of these other things that are going on in the second half of the 20th century, like decolonization, like globalization, which are all kind of entangled with the Cold War, in which the Cold War kind of influences in lots of ways, but, but which are also their own things, which have their own uh, history.
1: In the spirit of that, and because you've just blown people's minds with this, um, what should they read? Where should they start?
3: If they're interested in the Cold War, there's a recent book uh, that's uh, come out by a historian called Odd Arne Westad, who's a Norwegian historian. And he's one of the, the kind of the big historians of this kind of global turn in Cold War. Mm-hmm. Scholarship. It's called uh, the Cold War: A World History. I think it was published by Penguin a couple of years ago, and that's the kind of the best kind of you know overview of of all of these new ideas and, and all of these new, new global perspectives on the Cold War. If people are interested in some of these other topics. It's difficult because I don't think yeah, there's a lot of kind of academic scholarship yeah. on decolonisation things like that. But I don't think that's necessarily fed through into into kind of you know um, uh, kind of popular history books yeah. to the same extent. Um, so I <laughs> I can't think of a particular book to, yeah. to recommend that would kind of that would off that. But I think I don't I don't know. I would encourage people to 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 think about particularly this this history of decolonization. Yeah, um, and to kind of to, to 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 look out for for works on uh, on that, and to think about the history of kind of you know Nehru's India, and the history of kind of you know post-colonial kind of Egypt and and Ghana and uh, Angola and all of these kind of things, because I think these are the, that those are the types of history that kind of give us an insight into into these kind of processes.
1: That's it. That's your next project. You need to do a popular <clears> about decolonization <laughs> David, thank you so much for coming on to give us an overview of a global Cold War and not just the Rocky versus Ivan Drago Cold War uh, that we've all grown up with. It's been brilliant. Great. Thank you very much.
3: When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org